Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Lecture 31, The Dissection of the Psychical Personality, Sigmund Freud is going to tell us how the superego is related to and emerges out of what he calls parental authority, the parental function, parental agency. There's a lot of different names for it, but it's talking about actually existing people in the relation to the child. So these could be parents in the traditional sense, mother and father, biological parents. They, they could also be adoptive parents. We could talk about caretakers of many other sorts as well, which could include other family members, could be people within an orphanage. The point is, is that a child originally does not have a superego. This is something that develops out of the child's engagements with, relations with, reactions to what is happening in relation to them on the part of these adults. And, you know, these adults don't necessarily have to be all that old. They could be 16-year-old kids who are, you know, having a baby and raising a toddler. It could be any sort of myriad configurations that we're talking about here. They don't have to be good parents. They don't have to be particularly well-informed, but there is something that we can call a parental function that the superego is going to emerge out of. And Freud tells us that prior to the development of the superego, what we really have is something like an amoral child. He says, young children are amoral and possess no internal inhibitions against their impulses striving for pleasure. They, they want to do things, right? What keeps them from doing the things that they shouldn't do or that adults don't want them to do? The adult intervening in some way. I've sometimes joked that when you have a two-year-old, because, you know, I had children myself, your main job from two to four years old is to keep them from killing themselves as they go around and explore the world. So you're giving a lot of prohibitions, but you're also giving a lot of other guidance. And so Freud tells us the part which is later taken on by the superego when it's internalized within the child and then the adult is played to begin with by an external power, something outside of the child by parental authority. And he tells us how this works. Parental influence governs the child by offering proofs of love and threatening punishments, which are signs to the child of loss of love and are bound to be feared on their own account. So what we have here is reward and punishment as very basic ways, levers, you might say, of modifying behavior and attitudes. And these can take on literally thousands of shapes. Even the same action might be viewed in one context as a sign of love and in another context is a sign of displeasure. Think about the smile, for example. Smiling at somebody in one way could be showing benevolence, love, affection. Smiling at them in another way might be showing that you're 
ticked off with them and they'd better not do that one more time or they're getting punished in some way or pick any other thing that you want. An abusive person might be smiling because they're thinking, oh, I've got this child in my power now. So the child is engaging with the adults and they, as he says, experience realistic anxiety, which is the precursor of later moral anxiety. And, and Freud goes on to say, so long as it, meaning the parental authority, is dominant, there's no need to talk of a superego and a conscience. A superego, a conscience, that's something that you have within yourself. And as Freud is saying, look, children don't have that to start with. That is something that is, you might say, an achievement. It is something that develops in healthy, normal development within a person. Now, the superego makes a lot of trouble for us in many ways, but we actually do need it, Freud thinks, for proper human development. So we've got parental authority and influence rewarding and punishing at the start, and then something new happens. So he goes on and he says, it's only subsequently that the secondary situation develops. Now, this is a very important point. Secondary, meaning that there is no innate conscience in human beings as they're born, as they develop. It's something that develops and it develops through the contingent relationships with the external world, which includes other people, and then can begin producing this splitting within the ego that the superego is going to come out of and, and attain its own sort of agency. So he tells us it's, it's subsequently that the secondary situation develops, which we're all too ready to regard as the normal one, where the external restraint coming from the parent or figure is internalized and the superego takes the place of the parental agency and observes, directs, and threatens the ego in exactly the same way as the parents did with the child. So this is quite important. And there's a number of different features and dynamics that Freud is going to lay out here in relation to the parent of the child. The first thing that he says is that the superego takes over the power functions and methods of parental agency. So this is a very important point. The parent at a certain point doesn't have to tell the child what to do because they have internalized it. I'll give you a prime example of when I was a kid and where a superego was perhaps a little bit too developed and a superego was perhaps not developed enough. My mother, you know, after my father died, would in the summer leave lists of chores for myself and for my sister. And these were things that we were supposed to do during the day. Usually there'd be like about eight chores and some of them would be easy things to do. Some of them might take a whole hour and some of them would be, you know, fun. Some of them would be unpleasant. And so, you know, I knew I needed to get my chores done. Now I was also older than my sister as well. And so I would like knock out the stuff that I really did didn't want to do right away. I'm following the dictates of the superego, right? And then I get to play and, and get, get that reward. My sister would wait until the last hour of the day before my mom was going to get home, putter around doing whatever she wanted for the first part of the day, and then go and try to knock out all the chores at once. And it, it usually wouldn't work. And then she would get in trouble. So this would be an example of like a superego not being as quite as developed. You know, the superego allows us to be guided. It also is not a nice faculty to have, but he tells us, so the superego is not merely the successor to parental agency, but the legitimate heir of its body. And he tells us it proceeds out of it 
But before we go into that, he says we have to look at a discrepancy between the two. Now, this is very interesting. So he tells us that the superego is selective. It doesn't totally internalize the parent. As a matter of fact, there might be an internalization of other parts of the parent that the superego leaves out. The superego picks up on the strictness, the severity, perhaps even the cruelty of the, the parent, the demands that things be met, their prohibiting and punitive function. What doesn't get brought in? Their loving care or affection or anything like that. And Freud says, you know, this would actually make a lot of sense if we had parents who are, you know, overly strict. You've got a parent who's mean to you and very demanding. Well, then you're going to have this internalized parent who becomes the superego. But does this make sense in terms of parents who are actually nice to you? And, and Freud says, in my experience, and now he's, he's saying this after having seen quite a few patients, he says, experience shows that the superego can acquire the same characteristic of relentless severity, even if the upbringing had been mild and kindly, and had so far as possible avoided threats and punishments. So he sees this as a sort of contradiction, and he'll talk about this in, in other places. The superego is not exactly the same thing as the internalized parent. We can see from this because it doesn't have the love, the affection of the parent. Instead, it has the judginess, the criticizing, the whatever else we want to call it, the making us fearful. Now, he also has a long discussion here about identification. And he tells us towards the end of it that the installation of the superego can be described as a successful instance of identification with the parental agency. Now, what does all that mean? So if we go back a little bit earlier, he says, the basis of this process is what is called an identification. The assimilation of one ego to another one. Assimilation means becoming like, becoming similar to. So you resemble your parents, whether you like it or not. I mean, when we're adolescents, we're often like, oh, I'm never going to be like mom and dad, right? But as it turns out, we often are. <laughs> when we have our own kids, we get to see this even more so. But we eventually, we take on a lot of their own traits. And so he says, you know, as a result of which the first ego behaves like the second in certain respects, imitates it, and in a sense, takes it into itself. So there's a double meaning to this assimilation, right? There's assimilating in the sense of like making myself similar to them, but it's also like taking them into me and making them a part of me. So he, he goes on and he says, it's a very important form of attachment to somebody else, probably the first, and not the same thing as the choice of an object, an object of desire, right? An object of whatever else it's going to be. He says the difference can be expressed in some way such as this. If a boy identifies himself with his father, he wants to be like his father. If he makes him the object of his choice, he wants to have him to possess him. In the first case, his ego is altered on the model of his father. In the second case, that is not necessary. Necessary. And so, you know, he speculates a little bit about how different these can be. And he tells us that this can also happen with lost objects. We don't need to worry too much about that. But what's going on here? Well, that's preparing the way for assimilating not just the ego of the other, but also, as he's going to say a little bit later, their super ego. So what is actually being likened? What is actually being made the same here? 
I might, in fact, be adopting my own dad's ego, which is being harassed by his own super ego or, or things like that. He also brings in the Oedipus complex. Now, this is something that is pretty controversial. Freud may have made way too much of this, but I, I don't think that in order to use the idea of the superego, we necessarily have to be literalists about the Oedipus complex, but we should say a little bit what it means. So in the Oedipus complex, and there's also theorized something, you know, that'd be correlative to it in, in the electric complex. The child, the male child wants to, like Oedipus, kill his father, marry his mother. Although this is, you know, not in a very literal sense. They wants to retain the affection of the, the mother, feels the father to be a rival, wants to displace him somehow, realizes that the father is stronger, more powerful, more capable begins to identify with the father, begins to, to assimilate the father. And now notice that Freud, in talking about it here, he doesn't say that that's all we're doing our whole life. The Oedipus complex for Freud is not something that characterizes adult humans unless they're really screwed up unless they never made it through to the end of the Oedipus complex. Instead, the superego emerges out of the Oedipus complex and, as he says, is going to, in some respect, replace it. So he tells us, there's a new creation of a superior agency within the ego. It's most intimately linked with the destiny of the Oedipus complex. How so? So that the superego appears as the heir of that emotional attachment, which is of such importance for childhood. With the abandonment of the Oedipus complex, a child must, as we can see, renounce the intense object cathexes which he's deposited with his parents. And it is as a compensation for this loss of objects that there is such a strong intensification of the identifications with his parents, which has probably been long present in his ego. So he goes on and he says, it's when the Oedipus complex hasn't actually been resolved that you get a screwed up super ego. He says the super ego is stunted in its strength and growth if the surmounting of the Oedipus complex is only incompletely successful. So this is a very important point. You don't actually need the Oedipus complex. As a matter of fact, you're going to leave it behind. So you've got the super ego, right? He also talks about later parents. Now this is kind of an interesting phrase to use. It's got a double meaning. Who are we talking about? Well, Freud tells us that the superego is formed not just through the agency of the parents, but also, as he says, the influences of those who've stepped into the place of parents. Who are they? Educators, teachers, people chosen as ideal models. And that could be sports figures. That could be musicians. That could be celebrities of different sorts, right? They function as alternative or later parents, he says. Normally, it departs more and more from the original parental figures. It becomes, so to say, more impersonal. And then he also talks about like, as you get older, and this is what happens in adolescence, right? You come to realize that your parents are not as infallible or as good or as persevering or as consistent as you'd like. They kind of come down from their pedestal 
This probably happens earlier for some than for others. And as a result, they have let, you know, these are the later parents. And he says, identifications come about with these later parents. And indeed, they regularly make important contributions to the formation of character, but they only affect the ego. The superego has been formed by that time. So your superego is not the mom and dad who you come to know as a 20 year old and you can relate to their problems and midlife crises and you know you feel a little empathy for them it's the person you knew at five years old who is younger and probably dumber than they are at 40 and when you're 20 right or whatever the age difference is going to be so this is a very important point the last thing that we want to bring up is that as freud says you're not often dealing directly with the parents' egos in how they've formed you becoming part of your superego, you're actually inheriting or being affected by their own superegos that are making them miserable as well. So he, he says, as a rule, parents and authorities analogous to them follow the precepts of their own superegos in educating children. Whatever understanding their ego may have come to with their superego, they are severe and exacting in educating children. They've forgotten the difficulties of their own childhood, and they're glad to, to be able now to identify themselves fully with their own parents who in the past laid these restrictions on them. So he says, thus a child's superego is in fact constructed on the model, not of its parents, but of its parents' superego. The contents which fill it are the same, and it becomes the vehicle of tradition, leading to tradition, ideology. And now if we go back to to Freud's point about the superego takes on this severity, even when parents are not themselves severe, but are loving, they're kind, they're nice, they're benevolent. That means that even if you're reacting against your parents, you know, I'm not going to be a mean jerk like them. You're also still, from a Freudian perspective, you're going to give rise to a, a you know, a child's superego that somehow still becomes demanding and severe with them. Now, how much of this is empirically borne out? How much of this is a matter of cultural assumptions? Those are questions that we don't have to go into too much, but uh, not at this point. This is how Freud pictures the superego emerging out of and supplanting within the child and then later adult who carries it around with them. The superego related to their ego. Parental authority gives way to this faculty or agency of the superego. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.